Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, a podcast by the Public Transport Association Australia, New Zealand. Each episode, we interview a top female executive from the public transport sector in Australia, New Zealand and around the world. If you're interested in leadership, workplace gender equality or building clean, green transport for the future, this is the podcast for you. Hello and thanks for joining me on this episode of Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Batsis, the Executive Director of Future Mobility at the PTA ANZ member organisation, the Victorian Department of Transport. I'm absolutely delighted today to introduce my guest. She's passionate about making life better for young people and their families with a strong belief that everyone should have an equal chance in life no matter where they come from. And it is an honour to welcome Australia's Minister for Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Local Government to today's podcast, Catherine King. Catherine, welcome to Women Who Move Nations. Thanks, Michelle. It's lovely to be with you. We'll get started straight into the questions. So as I said, you're Australia's Minister for Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Local Government, which are very large portfolios. And I understand you're the first woman to hold the portfolio of transport at a national level, which is just incredible and very inspiring. So I wanted to ask you firstly, could you just share an overview of your priorities and particularly in the public transport space? Well, the first thing I'd say is, is actually, you know, it is an honour to be a woman holding this portfolio. But it's also fantastic that at my state counterparts, we've got, you know, uh, Jacinta Allen in Victoria, we have Rita Safiotti in WA, we have Eva Lawler uh, over in the Northern Territory. So I think women really in charge of this significant economic portfolio. And I guess for me, really, both you know the infrastructure co- component, the transport component, and the regional development component are really all about enabling people's lives. So, you know, whilst you might be building large-scale public transport or large-scale roads or ports, or you're building smaller regional development projects, all of them are about actually improving the quality of life for people, about how they move about around. Uh, cities or between regions and regions and regions and cities for work or whether they're really about being able to stay in your own region to actually be able to work, to live and to educate your kids. So it's a huge portfolio, but really the thing underpinning it for me is about improving the lives of people. Yeah, that's incredible. And it's really interesting that you bring up the state counterparts as well, and it kind of leads into my next question. And certainly we know that the states are heavily responsible for public transport in their regions. And actually, you mentioned Jacinta Allen and Rita Safiotti, and they've actually both been on this podcast talking about what they're doing in their portfolios. But in terms of collaboration, and I think we've got a very interesting model in Australia where we have the federal government, the state government and the local governments all playing a part. And so I wanted to ask you, what do you see as the role of these level of governments in improving public transport? Well, they all have a role, to be honest. And I think you know, a lot of people or a lot of you know, the states sometimes just see us as a funder and we're not really. Like whilst we fund and invest, we're really a co-investor and we're interested in outcomes in the same way states and territories are. And mostly they are the same outcomes and we're driving in the same direction. And occasion the Commonwealth might be saying, look, we actually think, you know, for the people of this region, there's actually a really big gap here and we, we want to encourage the states to invest in uh, areas there. 
but really we're partners in making sure that people are connected for both work and social purposes and trying to improve the productivity of the economy and transport is very much part of that. Yeah, that's great to hear. And and what an interesting and I think really positive way to reflect on the co-partnership approach. It probably leads me actually to my next question and was obviously a recent announcement of $10 billion into road and rail infrastructure by the federal government. And one of the initiatives is around establishing the High Speed Rail Authority, which I understand will initially work on the Sydney to Newcastle section of the High Speed Rail Network. And if I've got that wrong, please do let me know. But I'd love to hear a bit more about that project and what benefits you believe that the project could deliver. Well, we're really right at the start of this. Major developed economies have high-speed rail, certainly across Europe. We're seeing, particularly on domestic routes, it's actually replacing aviation. It's a much cheaper, uh, much more affordable, but also a much more emissions-friendly form of transport. And so you're seeing certainly countries in Europe, Japan's had high-speed rail for a very long period of time. Uh, China's doing the same. And with our great distances between our cities and the work of net zero, high-speed rail is beginning to make more and more sense in Australia. So we've introduced legislation It's uh, in the House of Reps at the moment to establish the High-Speed Rail Authority. And really the role of that authority will to be get high-speed rail going in this country. We've put an initial down payment of $500 million and we'll work particularly with the New South Wales government to start looking at things like corridor acquisition and planning on the Newcastle to Sydney route, uh, as well as looking at bringing in the Central Coast along the way of that route. There's a long way to go. We've obviously got to look at financing mechanisms. We've got to fund it. We've got to look at uh, detailed design work. We've got to look at who we want to partner with in order to do it. But really it is making, as I said, more and more sense in Australia that we actually take this very seriously. And in order to actually start that work, uh, the High Speed Rail Authority will really be charged with actually getting that done, redoing the business case. I think it's not uh, the last one was done back in 2013, uh, I think when we were last in in government. So redoing that, but particularly uh, focusing on that large population corridor. Obviously, anything further in terms of high speed rail really is going to need to be tied up with settlement strategy as well, really looking along that east coast about where do we want population centres, how do we do that planning uh, into the future. And this is really a 20 to 30 year project we're talking about. It's so exciting though to hear the emphasis and the passion that you have, but also the government around high-speed rail, because we know and we see in Europe that it's become such a focus. And as you mentioned, the zero emissions, I think, is a really important factor. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions now around your career in politics, which I think our listeners will find really fascinating to hear. And Catherine, I understand you've been a member of Australia's House of Reps since 2001. So what has changed in the last 20 years, you know, your reflections and particularly for women in politics? So I'll go to women in politics in a minute. I think the nature, the sort of speed of the job has definitely changed. So when I started, and I date myself here, but we would rarely get inquiries via email. Really, email wasn't a way that people communicated with politicians' offices. 
most of my staff, we were dealing with people walking in the door or phoning the office. Uh, now, the vast majority of inquiries are by email. And of course, when someone sent an email, they expect that they're going to get an immediate response. And so we're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of inquiries every day from you know, immigration cases to child support to national disability insurance scheme to someone saying I've got a pothole out the front of my house so and you know whilst I recognize the different levels of government most people who are coming to you just say you're a politician I'm going to ask you to fix something for me so the the speed of the job has really changed and the volume has really dramatically changed and that's been uh, driven largely by technology and I think also people's expectations expectations around what that technology will deliver and that will deliver things much more quickly. But the, the sort of basics of the job haven't changed. We're still advocating for people, still trying to find solutions to problems, uh, still trying to um, advocate, as I said, in terms of government departments and trying to get outcomes for people. More broadly, in terms of the parliament itself, there are obviously far more women now than when I came in and certainly far more women on the Labor side of politics. I think we've hit our 50% target. I have to go back and check the numbers. So that really makes a, a difference. It makes a difference around the cabinet table. It makes a difference in our party political rooms. It makes a difference in the sorts of issues that we might think about when we're actually going about our daily lives. Um, I think also, you know, the more women that are involved, the as I said, the, the sort of broader, the broader the focus on the outcomes. So I think the fact that we've had the Prime Minister yesterday extend paid parental leave and the core focus of the election campaign was around affordable childcare is actually really reflective of women's voices being heard both in the Cabinet room, in the party room and then within the Parliament. And that's been such an incredible initiative and, you know, I've seen the positive uh, way it's been received actually you know, obviously you're in a position to make real change and contribute to that for, for society in Australia. And I wanted to ask you, what inspired you to enter politics in the first place? So, you know, 20 years ago, you know, what was it that led you to make that decision and what excites you most about your current portfolio? Well, the reason I entered politics and I, I was fairly young at the time and I, I sort of joined a political party in my 20s was really just frustration. I, I'd won the Victorian Young Achiever of the Year Award, I think, right back in 1991 and that gave me some money that allowed me to go take a leave of absence from the job I was doing as a social worker at the time and here in Ballarat. And I went over and decided to work as a social worker in Birmingham for six months and then also then travel around a bit. And I hadn't really... I'd done that before. And it was just after Margaret Thatcher had been in power, John Major was in power, and I sort of saw the way in which government decision-making and policy-making can really either open the world up for people or close it down. And I was working with young people, mostly people in the prison and youth training um, justice system here in Victoria at the time, and there was a Labor government in power federally, and they were making some decisions around Centrelink and employment entitlements that I was a bit uncomfortable with. So I thought, well, you either sit there and go, well, I'm uncomfortable with these and beaver along or go and do your life differently or actually try and get involved and affect change. So really that's what got me interested and excited in politics and then the opportunity came to run for the seat of Ballarat and uh, then I guess that's history now with um, 20 years. I guess the thing that really excites me, you know, we've been out of government for a decade now, is really the enabling power of being in government, the things that you can do that really do change people's lives for the better. 
And, you know, sometimes it can feel like the smallest thing, but it can really make a significant difference. So things um, like the Uluru Statement to the Heart will really make a difference for the way in which our First Nations people feel included in the whole of our country. And I think will really set us up as a really strong and powerful nation together And I think being able to argue that case, it's going to be a really challenging referendum next year, but being able to be part of that and be part of the decision that that's what we're going to do. Again, in terms of my portfolio, making investment decisions. So actually thinking about um, when you're making uh, investment decisions in public transport, what are the elements that actually help with people for people with disabilities. Uh, we're currently res- reviewing the disability standards on public transport and there's this real balancing act between you know, people, so in the you know, private bus operators saying they're going to really struggle to retrofit versus the rights of people with disability to be treated with dignity. We're seeing at the moment quite a pushback in the aviation space with people with disability really finding some pretty horrendous circumstances and my job's to try and make people do better. And so those sorts of things really excite me. I also really like beautiful architecture. I love good buildings. And so, you know, watching the way in which some of our built environment is developing, uh, and I hate awful development, it's sort of, I look at it and go, why did they build it that way? So really looking at how we can contribute, particularly through the regional portfolio and our urban portfolio into, you know, good precincts. So we've invested, for example, in the Green Line in Melbourne. Again, I think something that will transform the way the city works. Suburban rail in Victoria, again, transforming the way the city works. We've just seen Metronet open over in Western Australia and, again, like really changing suburbs and changing the way people are actually able uh, to live and, the, and seeing, you know, seeing train stations actually as a heart and a centre of a community rather than just something that's a bit of an add-on that people might, you know, come, come to and from. It's actually part of where you might actually shop. It might be where you actually do your recreation activities. It might be near where your school is, really making those the hub. And that's what Metronet has done and I think that's what suburban and rail is going to do for Victoria. If you're enjoying Women Who Move Nations, make sure you follow us on your favourite podcast platforms and rate the show to help more people find us. Follow the Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand to learn more about public transport and to keep up to date with all our events and activities. Our website is ptaanz.org. We're also on LinkedIn. Just search Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. And our Twitter handle is PTAANZ underscore. If you have any feedback or questions, please send us an email at info at PTAANZ.org. Catherine, you mentioned that you're from the regional electorate of Ballarat in Victoria. And for our listeners who might not be familiar, it's a regional city in the state of Victoria. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about public transport and how that differs between regional areas and metropolitan areas, because obviously the big difference is that in cities you're trying to move lots of people shorter distances, whereas regionally you might be moving fewer people for longer distances. So I wanted to ask what insights can you offer us about the different public transport needs of cities and regional communities? So I guess when you look at the rail up in my hometown of Ballarat, originally, you know, 150 or so years ago when it's established, you know, we've got this beautiful grand railway station that's got a bar and a ballroom and that's sort of how people travelled. It was really for social occasions. It was used for 
people travelling up to town for the day to shop. And really that's what rail was about. It was about a social occasion. That's long gone. People are using it to commute for work. So there are hundreds and thousands of people, particularly over COVID, who've moved to the regions and said, no, you know, I actually want space. I want, you know, to actually live in a different place, but I haven't got work. I still need to be connected to the city in some way. So really it is now uh, largely about commuting. It's still got that social uh, factor. I caught the train up. Uh, last weekend um, uh, for a social purpose myself and it was absolutely packed with people going to the Royal Melbourne show, with people just going to the city for the day, uh, people going up, I think, to sporting events and then just people going for a day out. So on the weekends, yes, certainly that's what it does. But during the weekdays, it's really a commuter service. And so people are looking at you know reliability. They want to be comfortable. They want to be able to, to get to their destination on time. And so I think improvements in regional rail have actually been really important and the investments that have been made, you know, certainly on those spine networks of you know, Ballarat, Bendigo, Geelong and Terrelgan, I think that's right, and around the Maui line, they've been really important, but we always need to keep doing better because I think more and more people are expecting this is a commuter service and it's got to be better than getting in your car and, and you know, driving into town and then uh, having to find parking and pay for parking. So that's really, you know, the, the thing I look at in terms of the regions. And again, you know, there's not a lot of rail connections left between regions. And I think that's been a, you know, it's a sad thing. It's a demise of another number of passengers. But, you know, there's always talk about trying to bring Geelong Ballarat back at some point. That's a pretty busy road network, but, you know, it's a lot of, lot of money to do those things. But I think really thinking and understanding that rail in particular is now providing a very, you know, it's, it's very different to what it was 150 years ago, yet we've still in many places still got the 150-year-old infrastructure to deal with. There's some really interesting reflections there and I've got to say it's amazing how many train stations have a ballroom because um, <laughs> I know Flinders Street Station has one as well, which is not in use. You've been talking about investment decisions and I can see that as a policymaker there'd be so many possibilities of how you can invest and where you would invest. So I wanted to ask in that context, how do you balance making decisions that will lead to the best outcome for the community, but might be unpopular in the short term or with certain community members? Well, I think the first thing is to work in partnership with states and territories, and that's not always always easy. I think our political cycles don't always line up, and I think you know you can can see at the moment we're having a bit of a stash with New South Wales, but I think that's you know that'll settle down after their election has finished, and we'll see how we go with that. So I think working in partnership with states and territories, because at the end of the day. If a state doesn't want to invest in something in partnership with you, then it's not going to happen because, you know, whilst we are builders as well and co-investors, at the end of the day, the contracts are let by state departments of transport. And if they're saying that we'll go slow on that project, then it really, you know, it's frustrating at the Commonwealth level because you, so you've got to really be in, in step with the state government or also sort of pushing them in a direction to say, look, this is, this is why this is actually important for the economic productivity of the nation or the livability of this particular area. I think the other is really, uh, again, the role of Infrastructure Australia. And I think, you know, the reason we set that up a decade ago was to try and give better information to policymakers at the federal level. There's now been some state state infrastructure um, uh, bodies set up, but really giving better information at the policy level uh, in terms of business cases, around assessment of when you might, the timing of projects, so providing that alongside the 
uh, work that our departments do in order to actually provide good advice to policymakers. So really it's about that, but it isn't easy, you know, when you're making planning decisions that impact on people's lives. I'm, I'm the plan, you know, the planning minister in essence for uh, all of the airports in the country and aircraft noise, runways, all of that um, create an impact on people and it's, you know, they're very real impacts, they're felt impacts and trying to balance and make those decisions is not always easy, but you've got to sort of look at the, you know, where are the job's going to be, what's it going to be for the long-term sustainability of this particular area. In the case of airports, for example, it's, you know, is this going to extend the life of this airport or are we going to see that we're going to need a second airport sooner, which will have an even greater impact on people. So you've got to weigh a lot of that stuff up and we're very reliant on getting good advice from our public servants to actually help with that. Yeah, great. It's interesting to hear the process and, and your reflections and insights into that. Uh, Catherine, I wanted to ask a question, really reflecting on your career, and you have been involved in so many amazing initiatives, but I wanted to ask you, is there a project or initiative that stands out to you that you're really proud of? Look, there's lots of them when I look at investments. So I think, for example, like they, they go range from small to big to some extent. So when I was last regional development minister, for example, I had to make decisions about an economic investment package in Tasmania. And so I had to make decisions about what companies and what businesses we're going to invest in to try and grow jobs in Tasmania into the future. And there was a lot of contestability about that. And so I think making decisions about that, I now see 10 years on these really amazing businesses, um, you know, from where, whether it was from aquaculture to whiskey trails to investments in, you know, um, importing cherries out of Tasmania to one project, which I'm desperate to go over and see where they were salvaging timber from uh, water from where the dams had gone and are making uh, incredibly expensive, beautiful furniture out of that, out of a workshop in Tasmania employing, I think, about 10 people now. And I remember looking at that proposal thinking, gosh, you know, is that actually going to work? Like, how are they going to do that? How are they going to salvage this timber? And I think, I think Landline's done a piece on them fairly recently as well. So it was really exciting to see that. So there's things like that. And then at the local level, you know, providing opportunities. So we invested in a, a, a state-of-the-art cancer centre here in Ballarat, and it's not often you get involved in big buildings that you know, look amazing but actually change lives and that's what health infrastructure often does. So investing in regional cancer centres, uh, looking at the long-term survivability for people in regions from cancer and actually saying you need to treat people closer to their homes in order to get better outcomes. Uh, that's been pretty important. We did that back in 2013 in my hometown. But again, you know, there's lots across the country. Thanks for your reflections on that, Catherine. I now wanted to turn the conversation to hearing a bit more around your experience being a woman and your career as well. And um, I mean, I'm assuming that being in politics is not always easy. And certainly, I mean, you're one of the most senior females in Australia. If not, you know, working in transport, you're the national minister, you know, for infrastructure and transport, as well as your other portfolios. And I wanted to ask you about work-life balance and your personal resilience and how do you manage that? Or indeed, do you? Because I've had lots of conversations in this podcast with women sharing that, you know, they still struggle with that. But any tips or advice or insights you could share with our listeners would be great. 
Well, I think the first thing is you do need to be very resilient if you're making the decision to go into politics. It is tough. There is always someone who wants to criticise what you're doing or thinks they can do a better job or thinks you didn't quite do well enough. And, you know, of course, as women, we're often our own worst critics as well. We want to be perfect at everything and it's hard to always be that way. Uh, So you do have to be pretty resilient. You have to pick the voices of people who you really genuinely go, okay, thank you. You know, that was was constructive and helpful uh, and useful criticism versus the people who actually want to tear you down. And there's always plenty of those as well. So you've got to work your way through that. Um, so that's the, the first thing, deciding if you want a career in this sort of environment, you need to be pretty resilient to start with and know that you've got good support networks and a good capability of managing you know, both your mental health, but also your physical health as well. And again, that's not always easy. I think in terms of the um, balance, like it's not easy, but I think any woman who's working full-time or working at all, it's really challenging. You're all, always feeling as though you know, a lot of emotional energy is trying to go into making sure everything, all the balls stay up in the air and that you, you know, there's food in the fridge that people, you know, children are fed, that um, people are getting to school, you've got incoming on all those sorts of things as well, as well as keeping your personal relationships. And it's not easy. I don't think anyone will pretend otherwise. There's lots that you, you can and you can't do. And I think learning over the 20 years is to be kind to yourself, to know the things that are important, value those, put energy and effort into those and really you know, ditch, ditch the things that you don't have to. But again, as I said, it's a, it's tricky. It's always tricky. At the moment, my husband's uh, in the Navy Reserve and he's been uh, doing three weeks up in Queensland on a deployment. So I've been sole parenting for the last three weeks. I think women who work, who are sole parents, who juggle all of that are the most incredible people in the world and they should be running the nation. Um, Absolutely. Uh, well and surely because I don't know how they do it. Uh, I've struggled for two weeks, like just doing it, you know, you know, having two people is much easier and trying to share the load is definitely much easier. And we have a sort of a, a lead parent relationship in our house where I say, right, you're the lead parent today. You're making the decisions. I'm the backup parent. I can't, I've got headspace to do anything else other than that for the, this day. Um, we try and balance that at home, but it's it's just genuinely not easy. And I don't, you know, you're always feeling as though you're, right, you're running a million miles an now to play catch up with everything and you know you always think someone else has got it easier than you. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you sharing your personal reflections into that. You mentioned something which really struck a chord with me that women can sometimes be their own worst critics. And it actually leads me into my next question because I know that it can be challenging sometimes for women to build and maintain their confidence. And something I often ask on this podcast is about imposter syndrome. And so I wanted to ask, do you have any advice for women who might be suffering imposter syndrome? And do you have any tips on how to handle situations where women might be doubting themselves or their confidence is low? I don't think there is a person in the world, male or female, that at various points, you know, whatever you're doing, that you're not saying in your head, gosh, really, is anyone going to discover that I don't know what I'm talking about or what I shouldn't be here? I think the trick the trick is for blokes is they brush it aside pretty quickly and just plough in. Uh, I think everybody at some points, and I'm, and I'm watching, I'm raising a, uh, raising a son, he's 14 at the moment, and the level of anxiety that you know he has at a whole range of things, uh, I watch that. He you know, own, owns his spaces in different ways to the girls in his, his, his class do, uh, but he certainly also struggles 
rules with, you know, I can see him thinking that maybe I shouldn't be here or this isn't right. So, but I think the difference is, you know, being able to get overcome it and say, actually, no, I don't have to know everything. I don't have to be the most, the smartest person in the room, but I've got a contribution to make and actually having the confidence to make it. And it's really just, Again, finding those people who you care deeply about, whose views and values you respect, and checking in with them and saying, "What do you think about that? Was that okay? Did I did I do this in a different way, or how might I reflect on it?" And then you know, plowing on or learning from that experience. And I think that's you know certainly what I've learned over time. Um, it doesn't always work. <laughs> you know, there are times when I just think I could have done better, or um, you know, people are, are knocking you about various things. But I think that's the advice I'd certainly give: find people who you actually care about, but also know that. Every single other person at the table is experiencing exactly the same thing. Absolutely. And I think a lot of our listeners will resonate with that, actually. We're on to the last question. And so to finish our chat, could you please share your top piece of advice for women who might be younger or early on in their careers? Yeah, get stuck in. Like I think, particularly if you if you're interested in uh, politics at all, or if you're in, interested in policy making, I think there are no better jobs than either within the public service or within uh, ministers' offices or in politicians' offices. I've never been very good. I see people who've got these incredible plans written down and their five-year goals and all of those things. I'm hopeless at that. I've never done that. Um, But I've always wanted to think about being as well-rounded as I could, so to learn as much as you can. So I had very early on, I had not-for-profit sector experience as a social worker. I then went and worked for an MP for a very short period of time, but did that I've then worked in the public service uh, in in Canberra and in um, the Victorian Public Service briefly on a secondment. I've worked in the private sector. Try and experience all of that and you'll see that there are very different views of policymaking in all, all of those different settings, but different opportunities for that. So if you really want to be involved in policymaking, really think about where do I want to influence and go for it. Like, try and get a job in the public sector, um, volunteer in a politician's office to understand how we think and how we think, go about making policy. Uh, have a go if you get it, manage to get a job in the private sector, do that as well. But uh, just get involved, put your hand up and, and get stuck in. That's great advice. Thank you so much for sharing, Catherine. We're at the end of our questions and I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time and speaking with us today. It's incredible to hear about your career, but also just how honest and open you've been about your advice and experience as well. Lovely. And thanks to all your listeners for listening and tuning in. That was the Honourable Catherine King, Australia's Minister for Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Local Government. I'm your host, Michelle Batsis, and you've been listening to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I hope you'll tune in again soon. Thank you for listening to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. This series is produced by Dylan Adler and Sophia Dickinson for the Public Transport Association, Australia, New Zealand. To find out more, please visit our website, ptaanz.org. Tune in for more soon.